You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 275. Christopher Smith and Empowering Conversations. Conversations will heal the world, friends. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being here. I appreciate that you are and that you found this episode. I know that's going to be good, especially if you like conversations, because we're going to talk about conversations. Maybe that's a, a little meta. Don't see me on Facebook or something. Anyway, whatever. Uh, friends, I'm glad you're here. Let's. Uh, I'm going to introduce our guest. Our guest is the senior editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and author of several books of his own, including the one I have in my hand, How the Body of Christ Talks, Recovering the Practice of Conversation in the Church. So you can see I had to, I definitely had to get that one and have a conversation with them. Our guest is Christopher Smith. Christopher, welcome to Halfway There. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to have you here and just have the conversation about conversations, right? <laughs> Yep. So I, I gave that sort of, you know, it's one thing to say you're the senior editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and you're an author, but there's more to you. So give us kind of that, like, take us a little deeper into who you are and where God has you right now. Yeah, that's uh, it's, <laughs> it's a great question. I kind of do a lot of different things. I mean, particularly because the Inglewood Review is a fairly small uh, publication, uh, as in a lot of uh, small uh, publications. Uh, you end up doing kind of the staff uh, ends up doing a variety of different things. Uh, so I do a little bit of marketing, uh, a little bit of kind of traditional editorial work of assigning reviews, assigning uh, writing assignments, and um, and then I mean, obviously kind of uh, editing editing uh, stuff for our site. Uh, so uh, so yeah, I think that uh, and just kind of. Have been fortunate over the years uh, to do a fair bit of my own uh, writing. Kind of my my background, I went to grad school and studied philosophy in grad school, um, and actually it was kind of in while studying uh, philosophy that I really kind of became interested in uh, in writing. Uh, I had a professor in grad school who was very much a stickler about the use of language, uh, but rightfully so. Uh, and had, he had some very specific ideas about how uh, grammar should be used uh, to, to actually convey what you mean to say uh, and the care uh, which with, with which we should take to use the language that we use. Uh, and so really I was fascinated by that and um, kind of uh, led me into uh, doing a lot of writing. Uh, and of course, over the last 20 or some years, I've had a good bit of opportunities to uh, to practice that so that. so hopefully that gives you a little bit fuller picture uh my wife and i are part of the Englewood christian church community uh here on the near east side of indianapolis uh, we'll probably talk about a little bit more about that as we go on because the church is uh, uh very much uh central to what i talk about in how the body of christ talks um and we have three kids the oldest of two who just went off to college this fall so we're kind of uh, in a new season of life so so anyway that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, I love that. I can relate to that because our our oldest is also uh she's in her second year. So we're kind of we're kind of right, yep. <laughs> right in there. 
yeah, I've heard that uh, those that started college last year are kind of like freshmen again this year because so right. many of the s- schools were in weird situations due to the pandemic and did things virtually in a yep. lot of cases. It is definitely a little bit different uh, situation. So that's that is good. Um, okay, so I have a ton of questions for you. So at Inglewood sure. Review of Books, like how long has that been around? That's because I remember hearing about uh, that when I was in school, like a long time ago. Yeah, we started in 2008. Um, So we had had a little bookstore based out of the church here and I was kind of running it. Um, But then kind of with the first downturn of the recession in 2007, 2008, we lost a lot of our income uh, from selling books uh, just because of the recession. And we were kind of scrambling around and we knew that we weren't going to make much money doing it, but somebody had the idea, why don't we just kind of send out an, an email with a book review once a week, uh, just to, to our friends, basically. And we started with maybe about 100 people kind of pooled our email address books. Uh, and that was kind of the start of it. Uh, and very rapidly, uh, folks were pretty excited about it. It was about the same time a lot of magazines and newspapers were cutting mm. their coverage of book reviews, um, or coverage of books in general. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was good timing, well received, and probably within six months of starting the email list, we decided we had to make it more accessible than this kind of under the radar uh, email list. Uh, so we started started a website, and then about two years later, about 2010, uh, we we did started a quarterly print magazine as well, uh, which ran for about a decade. But actually, in two, 2020, just before the pandemic uh, started, uh, we shut down the uh, the quarterly print magazine. It just wasn't sustainable for us to do a print uh, magazine anymore yeah print, uh, print's so. hard because it's expensive yeah my background was in it uh so i kind of always kind of felt more natural kind of doing the online uh, publication i never felt really felt like i got my bearings as the editor of a of a print magazine uh but but like you said there's certainly uh, quite a challenge uh to to pulling that off uh, in the 21st century so that's really fascinating. I love that you do that because I think that particularly evangelicals, we need, we need to be reading and reading more than just the Bible. Right? Like we need to be educating ourselves and there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but I want to hear about you. So you are currently in Indianapolis. Are you from there? No, no. I grew up in the Washington DC area, uh, but my parents are both from the Midwest. Ah. Um, and so I went to, uh, college at Taylor University uh, here in Indiana, a little bit up the road from where I am now, yeah. um, and basically have stayed in central Indiana uh, since I graduated uh, from Taylor in uh, many, many years ago, we'll just say. <laughs> yeah. When, when, uh, when were you there? Uh, I graduated in 96. Um, okay. So we, I, I think probably, this was my... We probably knew some of the same people. I, so I went to, uh, like, went to, high, well, I graduated in 95 but a bunch of friends that I know kind of went to, went to Taylor. So that's, that was kind of a popular place coming from Iowa. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So that's, that's cool. I, I love hearing that. Um, okay. So how did you, was it a Christian family? Your, your family grew up in the Midwest. So mm-hmm. were the, yeah. Okay. Yep. What was that like? It was good. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there's lots of things that I'm grateful for. Um, uh, probably not as, conservative or um, uh, not as comfortable with the term evangelical as I would have been growing up. Um, uh, yeah, I kind of have a complicated relationship uh, with, with evangelicalism. Um, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, 
Well, you're in uh, good company. So let me just say that. So like, I, yeah, and I think a lot absolutely. of it goes back to my Taylor experience since we just mentioned that uh, kind of came to Taylor. My fam- my dad was a teacher and my mom stayed home. So we were a fairly lower middle class kind of family and kind of went to Taylor and just kind of really felt out of place there, uh, which a fairly generally fairly affluent, uh, fairly conservative politically and ideology ideologically and that just wasn't I, I never kind of completely uh, made my peace uh, with that um, and uh, and yeah and then then since then uh, kind of still have kind of been uh, on the margins as it were of evangelicalism uh, certainly uh, there's things I appreciate about uh, certainly I mean I appreciate we grew up I grew up in a Grace Brethren Church uh, which is yeah. Grace Brethren Churches are a denomination whose headquarters are up in northern Indiana, um, but one of, the, one of the things I really appreciated is just how seriously they took took scriptures, um, and I, I learned a lot. Uh, we had a the pastor of our church was an excellent preacher, and uh, and I was uh, there's many particular sermons that I remember uh, from kind of growing up in the church, and uh, uh, though I don't kind of necessarily always agree. Uh, with the ways that the scripture was interpreted there, um, uh, I appreciate how seriously uh, scripture was taken. Um, well, yes, yeah, so and what, what, uh, that's kind of stayed with me. I love that. Really interesting. I'm interested in what's a distinctive for a Grace Brethren Church because I've never never heard of them. Yeah, that, that's kind of um, yeah. I mean, I think they they take. And again, I haven't really been in those churches since I went to college, uh, so it's been. That's okay. And I haven't really even kind of uh, kept uh, too close of uh, t- tabs on folks uh, in that tradition. Uh, but kind of growing up, it was um, probably a little bit more on the conservative side of the evangelical spectrum. Okay. Um, uh, very, t- they take discipleship very seriously. Um, they were pretty, a lot of, uh, their congregations are pretty early on in kind of doing small groups, um, uh, which can appreciate, uh, certainly. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, uh, I mean, I think those maybe are a couple of, a couple of this distinctives. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Um, so how did that affect you and and how did your faith kind of become your, your own? You, you kind of went to, it sounds like, you know, go, I'm, uh, I'm guessing you tell me if I'm wrong, go into someplace like Taylor, sort of a quintessential kind of, you know, in the nineties is probably you had the, you know, youth group experience and the whole like nineties sure. kid thing going, <laughs> go, going, getting educated all the way through Sunday school on up. What was, is that, was that, was that your experience? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And kind of went on to Christian colleges, kind of an extension of that. Totally. Um, I mean, I looked at other colleges, uh, but I was very interested in computer science and, and Taylor at that time. And still today, I think has a pretty good uh, computer science program. And so that was really kind of turned down some some scholarships to go to other schools um, because yeah. I wanted to, to go to Taylor and do computer science. Um, and so some, some extensions, some to some extent, that was an extension of um, kind of growing up in the church and youth group. There's actually a handful of us from from our church uh, that ended up at Taylor, which is kind of odd since we were in the, you know, five six hundred miles away, yeah, uh, in uh, suburban uh, DC. Yeah, that's fascinating. 
So how did your faith become your own and how did, how did you kind of grow in, in those seasons? Yeah, that's a good question. I think really, I mean, certainly for, as for a lot of folks, uh, college was an important part of that. Um, but uh, during college, I had a kind of tenuous relationship uh, with church in general. Uh, honestly, a large, to a large part, uh, logistically, uh, Taylor is uh, kind of, as some people have said, kind of in the middle of cornfields in a small rural town uh, yep. in uh, north central Indiana. Uh, and I went to Taylor, as I kind of already said, as kind of a lower middle class kid, uh, and I didn't have a car. Uh, so to actually, and uh, Taylor doesn't, unlike some Christian colleges, Taylor didn't at that time, and I still think this is true, uh, they don't have a campus church. They don't have a church on campus. Mm. Um, so uh, to go to and to be engaged in a church uh, congregation, I had to kind of be at the mercy of uh floor mates and so forth, uh, which I did uh, fairly regularly, but it, I never kind of developed a consistent relationship with a particular congregation. Um, so uh, between that and just kind of the general uh, kind of questions of trying to figure out what I believe and how that, how, how that is differentiated from the faith that I grew up with and the faith of my parents and all that, um, really it wasn't until after college uh, that I started actually becoming a little bit more rooted in those uh, ways. Uh, reading is an important part of that story. Mm. Uh, I had a professor in college um, who, uh, who was actually one of my uh, math professors, uh, but he also taught a lot of courses in the honors department at Taylor. Uh, and he, uh, he uh, had grown up Mennonite and, uh, and my mom had grown up Mennonite. Uh, so I was pretty familiar with kind of the Anabaptist tradition of the church. Um, and uh, so kind of at the urging of, of this professor and kind of his challenging kind of throughout my years, kind of when I graduated and had a little bit more time, I started reading a little bit um, more uh, of Anabaptist history, theology, uh, so forth, uh, and really uh, kind of resonated uh, with me, uh, resonated with um, what, and certainly my parents had planted, so even though I didn't grow up in sure. kind of an Anabaptist church, uh, my parents uh, well, my mom grew up Mennonite, and my both of my parents graduated from Goshen College, which is a Mennonite school here in Indiana, Mennonite College. Um, so they kind of uh, taught me some of that stuff pretty early on. I was kind of that weird kid that uh, my parents read me uh, stories, pretty gruesome stories of the martyrs, oh, uh, wow. of early Christian martyrs and Anabaptist martyrs, uh, before I could even read, and I read pretty early. Uh, so probably like three, four, five years old. Uh, but that stuck with me and uh, actually eventually kind of um, became pretty important uh, for me. Also kind of uh, reading wise, um, in my first year out of college at some point, I don't even remember how I ended up doing it, but um, I picked up a copy of Richard Foster's classic book, Celebration mm. of Discipline. Um, and really, uh, I mean, deeply influenced by that book, um, but, uh, but also uh, that book, reading that book, was kind of a, a deep immersion for me in the history of the church, because uh, Foster draws uh, pretty deeply uh, from a lot of different uh, writers and thinkers throughout uh, church history. And basically what I did was kind of created a curriculum for myself. I uh, more somewhat unint unintentionally, but uh, read a lot of the books that Foster kind of drew from in writing uh, Celebration of Discipline. And that was a really good kind of historical and theological sort of education for myself. Um, 
uh, and an introduction to uh, the history of the church that I didn't get as much or as broad of uh, either in college or prior to college. Um, so, so anyway, those were some of the, the things that were pretty important for me. Uh, and kind of also, as I kind of alluded to, uh, just church was really, I really came to value um, uh, the role of the local congregation uh, mm -hmm. in uh, Christian faith um, that, uh, that our our Christianity isn't just kind of a me and God uh, sort of thing, uh, but the, the people of God are kind of at the heart of what God is doing in the world. I kind of see that throughout kind of the Old Testament uh, in the Israel, ancient Israelite people, but then again, Jesus uh, kind of gathering a community of disciples around himself uh, and that community of disciples kind of becoming, becoming the seeds of um, what we know as the church today. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that uh, became, and again, that's uh, something that's kind of pretty heavily emphasized within kind of the Anabaptist uh, tradition of, uh, of the church. Um, and so, uh, so that's been uh, pretty, pretty important to me over the last couple of decades. Okay. So there's a lot there that I want to just unpack <laughs> a little bit, but so once, so that you kind of mentioned it. Uh, so when, I, when you mentioned Grace Brethren, like, I was like, I don't really haven't heard of them but sort of Mennonite or, or not Amish necessarily, but like kind of that, that direction. Right. I was like, oh, okay. Is that, is that what, so is it more of in that vein Quaker? Maybe I might've thought. Yeah, not really, not Grace Brethren. Okay. Um, in fact, it's kind of weird. Um, Cause the Grace Brethren, the particular Grace Brethren church that I grew up in uh, being in the Washington DC area, we had a lot of folks uh, in our congregation uh, that were in the military or worked for the military, military oh, sure. in some capacity. Uh, so our church was kind of, I don't know if this is true of a lot of Grace Brethren churches, but our uh, the congregation I grew up in was very, I mean, today we would call it nationalistic, uh, but very much God and country, okay. uh, big 4th of July celebrations and so forth. Um, but that was very different. It was kind of weird for me growing up because I was being taught some of this kind of Anabaptist stuff at home, uh, which is kind of pretty critical of yeah, more of pacifist, right? Yeah, yeah, pacifist and kind of uh, more skeptical of uh, of nationalism and patriotism, um, and uh, so so yeah, I kind of grew up with a, a sort of a tension between what I was kind of being taught and learning at home and kind of the 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 beliefs and practice of, of our local congregation. Uh, and so eventually as kind of, you might intuit from the story that I told, I kind of eventually kind of resolved that by kind of returning to um, more or less the sort of Anabaptism that uh, my parents had uh, taught me pretty early on. Yeah. And, and so you kind of, and you had to move through that, right. To study and, and figure that out. Love Richard Foster too. Uh, like he's just that book celebration of discipline is such a, for formative book. I also love when I run into people who actually read it because yeah, like it's not. <laughs> yeah, not every, I don't know. I've lost track of how many times I've reread it. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't have a regular practice of rereading it, but probably at least a dozen or more times over the last uh, couple decades. I, he's. I, I need to find him, but I have a first edition of. Oh wow! I found at a garage sale for at one of our. That's family. a pretty early edition that you're holding there. <laughs> this is it. That's it's. Uh, and it says right down here first first edition. So I, I grabbed that. I was like, yes, I'm going to take that. 
for a dollar. Anyway, so that's just my foster bona fides. But um, so anyway, I'm, so I was fascinated. I'm fascinated by that. And you kind of created yourself a curriculum. Like you kind of went on this thing. I'm fascinated by the way that church history also plays into that. Cause I'm convinced every Christian should read or they should study a few things, hermeneutics, um, theology and church history, right? Because those, those mm-hmm. things will influence the way you think probably as much or more than almost anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know that I would disagree with that right. at all. Um, I mean, I think all of those things, all of those three things have been uh, really, really important uh, for me, but especially church history and history, history in general. I mean, I think kind of the place that we find ourselves in, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries is that uh, culturally history doesn't really have a whole lot of value. Um, uh, we, we just, uh, what I mean, some philosophers are thinkers would call a history or, or a historical um uh, and i think that uh, we do great damage uh uh by uh continuing to to uh be uh people without a sense a sense of history um yeah. uh, it, it's the people that go before us the, the culture that that forms us that gives us language uh that gives us bearing. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, I don't think we're can or should be rigidly bound uh, to, to follow everything that goes before us. Uh, but I think we do best when we, we honor uh, what we've received uh, from, from the church and from our parents and all of our ancestors that have gone before us. Right. Yeah. And as a, as, you know, particularly as an evangelical, one thing that makes me a little bit crazy is we seem to think churches restarted in the, in the 15th century. Right. So oh, yeah, no, like, no, doubt. Come on, no, 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 you got to go further or, or explore other traditions, which is another thing I appreciate about Foster. Right. Is he, uh, I just picked up a copy of streams of living water because mm-hmm. I, I yep. just love that idea that there's all these different ways, the streams of Christianity that, we can draw value from and certainly some of the Spanish mystics and, you know, were really formational for me when I discovered them. Right. Uh, uh, but had, that took a little while. Is there somebody or a specific thing that you studied or a book that you read, um, uh, church history that really shaped you or that kind of like helped you, helped you shape your thinking? Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly as I've kind of already said, uh, reading the early Anabaptists. Um, yeah. I think also reading the early church, um, the first kind of three centuries, uh, kind of pre, pre-Constantine. Yeah. Um, actually, the first book I wrote, and I, I actually, it's kind of a funny story because I didn't intend to, to end up writing a book. Um, I intended to edit, edit a book of kind of writings from the, er, the first three centuries of the church. Um, but I realized as I was kind of editing and pulling those those selections together that they really kind of needed a fair bit of explanation uh so kind of the first book that i wrote was kind of half writings from the early church and then kind of half uh kind of reflection on uh why those those particular uh selections are really relevant for us in the 21st century um so yeah i would say there's i mean a lot of different eras of of church history that 
are fascinating to me uh, from kind of medieval monasticism uh, to uh, well, the early church era and Anabaptists and probably some more that I could uh, name off with a little bit more thought. But, but, um, but yeah, I think the, the early church and the kind of uh, the early Anabaptists uh, probably are the most significant. Was there anybody in particular in the early church that you read? Because, I mean, like we can all imagine that period of history, but we, the names are for most of my audience probably right there. You know sure. I mean? Yeah. I mean, Justin Martyr, um, Tertullian uh, kind of spent a long time yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, some of his works. Um, I mean, I think those are uh, kind of, uh, and, the, and then also kind of the, the martyrdom stories mm. uh, of the early Christians as well. Uh, Ignatius, Polycarp. Yeah. Um, uh, Which I can't remember. Was it was it Ignatius that was like they were taking him to Rome to crucify him, and they kept like trying to break him out, and he was like, "No, no, I don't want. I'm I'm going. Like it's it's okay." Yeah, I think I think that's that's right. It's been a while since I've me too. Looked at that story. But. Fascinating stories, but interesting. You know, I I was thinking about that story the other day because I was thinking about the ways that certain segments of Christian nationalism, I'll just call it that right now in, in the United States are so intent on grasping their rights and fighting for their rights. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not a Christian idea for my friends, right? No, like, doubt. No, that, doubt. no, no, no. Like let's look at our ancestors. So friends, just to give you an idea of what that, where we can learn from church history. I think that's a really good example. The church fathers who, who would willingly go to their martyrdom for the sake of Christ, uh, regardless of their rights. And I've actually had that conversation on Facebook with people when I've said, Hey, Jesus laid down his rights. Oh no, he didn't. Oh, that's a whole mess. Don't, yeah, you don't want to, don't want to bring that up on Facebook. But anyway, so that's, uh, that's, that's where I think it's super valuable to, to be maybe in conversation with our, with our ancestors. We could put it that way too, if we're, if we're reading them. Sure. Uh, okay. So for you, then you, where'd you go after, after that? What, what, uh, cause you eventually went on to study philosophy, you said. Yeah. So I, I worked for a couple of years, uh, uh, just in it after I graduated from college and then had an opportunity, uh, to have my way paid, uh, to, uh, do a, uh, PhD program in, uh, actually I said philosophy earlier, but that was kind of shorthand. I was, uh, yeah. the department I was in was actually history and philosophy of science. Um, though my emphasis in that department was, was philosophy, but we did study a fair amount of history. And it was kind of an interesting department in that uh, there's a lot of things uh, kind of intersecting uh, there. Um, natural sciences, social sciences, uh, history, philosophy, um, religion to a certain extent. Um, so it actually, uh, my graduate school experience, I didn't actually end up uh, finishing my PhD, uh, I got I got a master's out of it, but uh, for a number of different reasons, didn't didn't finish the PhD. But it was actually a really good experience, and don't consider it a waste of time because it actually was really good uh, preparation uh, for kind of being a book review editor and just kind of um, a deep immersion into kind of history of ideas uh, and kind of all these different uh, sorts of movements in the humanities and in the sciences. Um, uh, that are helpful to understand, uh, to uh, make sense of how we got to the place where we are in the 21st century. Um, so, so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a good good experience. That's really fascinating. 
Uh, okay, so one question I like to ask is about kind of the dark night of the soul. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use John the Cross's term, right? Uh-huh. Uh Since you'll know what I mean, some people don't, so I have mm-hmm. to I have to filter that a little bit. But what uh, have you had an experience like that where you kind of wrestled with with God in that way? Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of uh, struggles. Um, uh, I mean, particularly with mental health challenges and depression. Um, so it's kind of sometimes difficult to kind of disentangle that uh, from uh, questions of, of doubt and faith and so forth. Um, because at least for me, as they are for many people, I think they're kind of uh, bound up together. I mean, I mentioned earlier kind of the importance of, of the church. One of the things that I struggled with uh, kind of growing up in a suburban place in a fairly conservative family um, that was uh, conservative. Uh, I don't know that I would say that our family was legalistic quite, um, but, but, but pretty cautious about kind of the social ways that we engage with people outside the church. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but anyway, that sort of experience and particularly just suburbia in general and kind of the the way that its geography has taken shape. Um, There can be, there was for me, and I've heard this from other people, that there was a deep sense of isolation, um, of loneliness, of just uh, longing, longing to connect with other people, but uh, really um, uh, finding that particularly challenging. Um, And so that's kind of, I'm sure that that sort of experience growing up has kind of shaped uh, my deep longing to to be in community, particularly community within the church. Um, and uh, yeah, and I mean, I think that uh, that uh, the the dark nights of the soul that I've gone through at different times um, feel particularly particularly isolating. Uh, particularly lonely. Um, and I mean, I know rationally that lots of other people um, go through through similar things. Um, but when you're kind of in the midst of uh, that sort of experience, um, uh, you can be uh, deceived into uh, really uh, thinking uh, that you, you, you really are all alone and maybe even yeah. sometimes uh, abandoned by God as well, uh, which is certainly not true, but uh, it can feel like that uh, at times. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I have a friend, well, so that's why it's often called the spiritual desert, right? So it's, it uh, can feel very desolate and like nothing's going on. I have a friend um, who once said, yes, but the desert can be a beautiful place, right? (laughs) So that was really fascinating. Oh, okay. That, that gave me a little, little more perspective, but yeah, I can definitely be, definitely be lonely. I hear, I hear that's a, a thing that, uh, you know, that you've wrestled with. How do you have any rubrics for how do you separate depression from, from like dark night of the soul? Like, have you figured that out or is that? Still <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Um, uh, you don't have the answer for all of us. Like uh, no, that's what we no, came I here don't. for. I'm just kidding. I mean, there's a lot of talk, obviously, today about kind of deconstruction and mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of 
younger folks in particular are going through. And I guess in some ways I kind of went through a lot of that on my own, uh, in my own uh, kind of, uh, in an earlier generation uh, yeah. kind of while I was going through college. And I think maybe that's not unfamiliar even for, for generations prior to mine. Um, uh, but, uh, but the, and I mean, I think that, again, this is kind of goes back to the conversation, the, the thread that we started about uh, kind of the importance of history, mm -hmm. but also kind of not being uh, kind of bound forever and ever to, to that sort of history and tradition and so forth that we've received. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think when, when I think about Dark Night of the Soul, um, it does obviously kind of have a particular sort of kind of religious uh, sort of uh, spin to it. Uh, whereas, uh, and certainly, uh, whereas depression more generally uh, may or may not uh, uh, may have other sorts of roots, so right. to speak. Well, yeah. So that's what I wanted to, why I asked about it, because I think a lot of times, you know, certainly mental health is a thing that we're talking about a lot uh, in our culture, which is great. I and mean, I think we need that. And, um, and the church really needs to be paying attention uh, to those kinds of things. Uh, but also, I, I believe um, that the dark night is just a normal part of the spiritual journey, right? Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think so. Yeah. I, mean, I think um, it's part of, uh, of being human. Uh, I mean, yeah. I th fascinating, just kind of going back to the kind of mental health aspect. I read a book um, a few years ago that just really resonated with me and kind of, uh, uh, but the book was uh, not a Christian book, uh, but uh, by a journalist by the name of Johan Hari, and the book was called Lost Connections. Uh, but he kind of looks at, I mean, he he recognizes that uh, mental health challenges are, are real, particularly in the book he focuses, focuses on kind of anxiety and depression. Um, but, um, but he also realize, recognizes and explores the ways in which these challenges are, they, uh, they flow in a large part by, from the kind of social environment <laughs> Uh, that we find ourselves in right. um, in the 21st century. Uh, not that people before this didn't have such challenges, but just the the sort of fragmentation of of culture uh, and the ways that we are kind of prone to prone to to isolation and loneliness, um, and uh, uh, and don't have ways don't have the same sort of ways to to talk and work through. Uh, these sorts of things that uh, previous generations might have had um, certainly uh, contributes to our our feelings of of depression of darkness yeah. um, and I mean I think and I, I'm hopeful and this may be uh, a bit of a segue into talking about some of the, the themes of the book um, but but I'm hopeful that uh, churches when they can't when we take our 
life together seriously uh, can can offer some hope um, to people who who are uh, struggling with depression and loneliness and isolation. Um, that I know it's been good for me uh, to to be a part of a church community uh, where I mean where I know that other people are are struggling with uh, similar sorts of challenges and it's not not taboo to to talk about uh, to talk about uh, some of the struggles that we're having. Maybe that's not something we do as a whole church, but uh, but uh, kind of within uh, small groups or small circles of of uh, friends uh, uh, to be able to uh, to talk about these things and to know that we're not not alone uh, in the in the struggles we have is a, has been a pretty powerful thing for me and I've I've I know others that it's also been a pretty powerful experience for. Yeah, finding community and even like you said, it doesn't have to be the the whole congregation, for instance, but it, even if it's a smaller group, giving you that space to know and be known. Right. And having that, mm-hmm. that, um, opportunity, uh, to hold space. I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that phrase right now, where if mm-hmm. we can just have that space for people where it's okay to actually express that you're feeling this way, that you're feeling lonely, even in the middle of the big crowd or the smaller group, that's, that's kind of unusual, certainly in our, in our day and age, which is strange. I mm-hmm. think because well, the internet has lots of problems, but it also lets you find your people, right? Like if so, sure. you know, like I've got a whole group of Christian podcasters and I think that's amazing. In the nineties, we wouldn't have been able to find each other. Right. But now we're, we're all together and we, and we do a whole new thing. So, um, but it, so there are positives there, but also, you know, sometimes you don't really know everybody. Sure. And it's not a, it's not an embodied community. I mean, as, as important right. as those types of communities are and as good as it is to be able to relate to people that have a shared interest um, kind of around the globe, um, they're not uh, the sorts of people that are going to bring you a casserole when you're sick or, right. um, uh, or kind of help, help plan a funeral for totally. uh, uh a family member that has died or whatever. Um, I know. And it's, yeah, it's something about those embodied sorts of communities. I know the best we could do. We had one of us who, who had had some surgery and we all pitched in for an Uber well, sure. gift card, right. For the family. Like that's, that's not, but we would have brought casseroles. And that's why I told her, I said, I would have brought you a casserole <laughs> if uh, I was in town, but I'm not. So sure. uh, it, it is a little different and there's no cornflakes on top of an Uber Eats gift card. That looks, that just gets messy. But um, so yeah, I love that. So talk to me about that idea of embodiment a little bit, because that that is important. And that is kind of one of those those ways. It's kind of been a theme, certainly since the pandemic. It's We don't talk about it every episode, but it's popped up here and there in the last couple of years. Why is that important? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, reasons. Um, I mean, f- for me, uh, I mean, certainly it's at the simplest level, it's the way that we were created. We were cre- we've been created by God as as bodies, uh, and I think we've done great damage uh, over the last four or five hundred years of the modern era, uh, trying to split apart right. body, mind, spirit. I mean, I understand the intent of kind of trying to understand those different spheres, but 
but in some, some senses that kind of divide uh, has been uh, pretty deeply fragmenting uh, for Christians and maybe for other folks as well. Um, uh, and I think probably has contributed to the whole kind of divide between secular and sacred um, mm -hmm. sorts of things that we experience. And um, yeah, I mean, I believe, uh, I mean, the nature of God in scripture as as I read scripture, I mean, as God as Trinity um, uh, is um, God, God as community. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's reflected uh, in our bodies um, that uh, in some senses, our bodies are an image of uh, the sort of uh, uh, communal relationship that God is uh, in Trinity, um, right. that uh, the parts of our bodies are intimately bound together. A hand is uh, pretty useless without kind of all the sorts of connections that it has uh, to, to the rest of the body. Um, and I mean, I think that a part of what our being created in the image of God is, uh, is uh, being being embodied um and uh and i mean all the sorts of communication and conversation uh that uh is is really important um that i mean basically we our bodies are in some senses a conversation uh between all the kind of an ongoing conversation between all the parts of our body uh and uh and kind of all kinds of messaging kind of going back and forth uh, through the new neurons and the, the brain and the nervous system to uh, pass uh, sensory uh, stimu stimuli uh, uh, and, and to, to act and react, all of that. Um, and I think that's a, a picture of kind of the life for which we have been created. Again, uh, when uh, I mean, we've been created uh, to to be created as social beings, to to be in community with other human beings and with God, of course, um, probably most importantly. Um, but the the nature of who God is as a Trinity is kind of also reflected in who we are as humanity. Um, that we were made to be uh, deeply and integrally uh, bound together with uh, other creatures also created in the image of God. Yeah. I love that you grounded the book in that kind of idea of Trinity, um, which is one of those doctrines that while it's a little bit, I want to use the word slippery in the sense that it's, like it's, hard, to, it's hard to get your fingers around, right? Like it's hard, oh, yeah, it's hard to hold absolutely. on to. Yep. Uh, I'll never forget trying to write my MDiv orals paper, trying to write about the Trinity is like the most perilous piece of that thing. Right. Cause it's like, you can get it wrong in so many ways. <laughs> But, and then suddenly you're a heretic, but, but that's, um, but that whole thing that the, when you, when you contemplate the Trinity and that interplay between um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the invitation as a human being to be swept up into it. Right. And mm -hmm. then add to all of that, the idea of um, not just uh, that I am invited into it, but you're invited into that conversation. And, 
And so are the people around us in our church and even maybe the people who aren't part of our church that we're no, no, called to what, go, go out and what God intends to. for, for all humanity. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it's at the heart. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, I do have my uh, qualms with the term evangelical, but one of the things I don't uh, have any uh, qualms with is that uh, this this life of faith is is really good news, uh, and I think right. kind of what we're describing this sort of uh, the the abundant life of God uh, in community um, is I'd be sure it, in practicality and in everyday sort of life it has struggles and its challenges, but but ultimately uh, it, it it's really good news uh, and it's much better uh, than than the alternative. Right. Absolutely. Okay, friends. So the book is called How the Body of Christ Talks, Recovering the Practice of Conversation. Make sure you go and pick that up. Um, I do have a few more questions for you, Christopher, if you want to like dive into some of what we're sure. what you talk I'd about in the, in the book. Um, first of all, conversation, like what drew me to this book was the idea of conversation. You know, like you heard me at the beginning, my whole I based my whole show around honest conversations, <laughs> right? Like that's what sure. I wanted to have. I sure. told you I had this group of podcasters. I just did a survey almost to a person, all of the respondents in there. When I asked them like, what do you love about your show? Conversation is the thing that they say, right? I get yeah. to talk to people and hear sure. stories I otherwise wouldn't get to hear. So the po podcast is interesting. It kind of creates this, I'm pontificating now, but it creates this interesting like <laughs> artificial kind of bubble where it's okay to actually have those conversations. That's maybe not in real life. Okay. You can do with that what you want, but, um, so I'm curious why, like why you wrote this and kind of why, how conversation like kind of captured you enough to write like a whole book about how should we go about doing this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for some of the reasons that I've already talked about, um, I was particularly uh, attracted to uh, the practice of conversation, but um, the church that, I'm part of now Anglo Christian Church, and that I've been a part of uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, I mean, we have a practice of conversation. I mean, we actually intentionally get together every Sunday, uh, and we have a conversation together. This kind of started uh, before I was a part of the church uh, in the mid 90s or so, mid to, mid to late 90s. Um, the church, like a lot of evangelical type churches. Uh, had a Sunday evening worship service that was kind of dying off. People were kind of losing interest in it during that kind of period. Um, but but Englewood was kind of a weird church, uh, and they didn't want to give up uh, kind of being together, getting together on Sunday nights. Uh, but they knew they couldn't continue to do just the same old kind of worship service that they had done for how many ever decades previous to that. Powerful point uh, so, right there. <laughs> Powerful point, uh, so, right? Yep. Um, so they basically, somebody had the idea, why don't we circle up chairs and have a conversation together? Uh, and that was kind of, basically we've continued that kind of ongoing conversation now for 25 years or more, um, just kind of week to week, pick up where we left off uh, the week before. And it was a real huge mess early on, um, just because we didn't know how to talk together. And this was really kind of pre-internet boom, um, certainly pre-social media. Um, but just the, the nature of kind of mod, late modern culture, uh, just because of a lot of the sorts of fragmentation uh, that we kind of already touched on, 
just we didn't yeah. we didn't know how to talk together we didn't know how to work through differences one of the things that we found out really early on in that conversation was that though we used a lot of the same terms uh like say salvation for instance or gospel uh, we didn't mean exactly the same thing by that not everybody we had different ways that we understood uh, some of those pretty common uh, sorts of Christian uh, terms. Um, and so really, uh, conversation gave us a space to, to work through that. And, and early on, it was pretty, pretty inflammatory and pretty tense uh, because we didn't know how to do that very well. Um, and what we really found out, kind of long story short, was that conversation didn't kind of magically help us resolve, like uh, didn't kind of help us kind of establish our own sort of dictionary. This is what all of these terms mean. Uh, but what it did uh, was it helped us to, to know one another and to trust one another, uh, even when we didn't agree. I love the phrase that you used before, and I think it's really important uh, for me uh, when I talk about conversation. Um, uh, and uh, when we talk about conversation here at Inglewood, but the phrase um, knowing and being known. Uh, that, that's fundamentally what conversation has done for us. Conversation is certainly, we talk about important things, um, important to understanding scripture, important for how we live faithfully together, uh, but really kind of at a deeper level, the practice of conversation, uh, which I should add kind of isn't just limited to kind of the formal conversation space that we have on Sunday, but we've seen kind of all kinds of conversation, kind of conversations bubble up throughout our life together. Uh, but, but all of these sorts of conversations, the collective effect of it is that we're kind of growing to know and be known uh, by, by our congregation, by uh, one another. Uh, and, uh, and it's a little bit of a taste of this sort of, of life uh, that God intends for us. I've been rereading a book that you may be familiar with, uh, Kurt Thompson, who's a medical doctor, uh, has a wonderful book called The Soul of Shame that we've been actually, our Sunday conversations recently at Englewood are, have been um, kind of for the last few months trying to kind of understand kind of the role that shame plays uh, in our life and guilt. And but so we've been looking at his book and he, he really emphasizes that um, that the life that God has called us to is one of uh, knowing and being known and that 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 can be an antidote in some ways or an alternative uh, to uh, to a life that is, is burdened burdened by shame. Uh, it's difficult because there's a lot of vulnerability uh, involved in knowing and being known, he, he emphasizes, um, but to the will to the extent that we're willing to uh, acknowledge that vulnerability because we are to be human is to be vulnerable, he says, mm -hmm. and I certainly would agree with that. Um, but to the extent that we're willing to uh, be a little more honest about the ways that we are vulnerable as human beings and and to to share that vulnerability uh, with with others around us, um, then we uh, start to to find uh, we start to to know and be known and find uh, the grace of God in that. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that it's like a, um, it's almost an antidote to the sort of superficiality of a Sunday morning service in so many. Of yeah. Our yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I hate to use that word cause there's, um, 
many types of worship services uh, that are deeply meaningful. Sure, there's uh, value think, there. Um, yeah, but I think the things that me, the contrast that I draw typically is that conversation in contrast to most worship services. And again, there's a, a degree of um, where we could argue about this, but, but a lot of uh, worship services tend to be passive, um, that we're listening, we're receiving, we're taking things in, uh, whereas conversation is much more participatory. Um, and, uh, uh, and we're much more engaged or hopefully much right. more engaged uh, and encouraged to be engaged. Uh, the health of the conversation really requires uh, engaged participants. Um, whereas in a lot of ways, um, most as a general rule, I'm certainly, there's certainly exceptions to this, but um, most uh, kind of traditional sorts of worship services, especially within evangelicalism um, tend to be kind of, very, very sort of passive. Right. Um, you're kind of learning and listening, um, and uh, maybe maybe singing along a little bit as uh, folks up on stage. But it's really more about kind of what's happening up up on the stage uh, rather than kind of throughout the congregation as a whole. Yeah, hundred percent. And so definitely, there's a contrast there. And I I have thought about this a lot where I. I kind of am in a place where I would much, I'm, I love my church. I love my, so in case my pastor listens to this, I love, it's fine. Thank you. But uh, also I am at a place where I'm like, I want more connection, right? I want more connection yeah. than what that's yeah. providing. But I think a lot of folks are in that the same boat. I, I do too. But I was, what I was thinking is that going in and out and kind of that Sunday morning experience often has, you know, I know I fall into this and maybe it's just me. I don't think so. Um, but those Sunday morning conversations that we have, right. Those, those are like, and they're nice. Like, hi, how are you? I'm great. How was your, whatever, you know, we, and we have these conversations that never allow us to really know each other. We know each other at a certain level, but we're, we don't often go beyond acquaintance, right. And in, into true. true and deep spiritual friendship, which I think is what we're actually trying to, trying to do. And so these kind of conversations like you're talking about can actually foster that. I'll use that word. Um, so how, um, so can you describe for us, like, what does that actually look like when you, what does it look like now when you show up and you're like, okay, we're going to have this conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think if someone were visiting, it would, it would take a while to kind of get, get your orientation a little bit. Um, but I mean, it's a facilitated, uh, conversation. So we have one person whose, uh, role is the facilitator, um, each week. Uh, there's multiple people that do that work. Uh, but we kind of rotate in order. We found out over a number of years of doing this that it doesn't work very well for the, for the facilitator to try to participate uh, in the conversation. Um, so so in that those people can participate on the weeks that they're not uh, facilitating. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in the role of the facilitator is just to kind of kick us off, get us started, remind us what we talked about the last week. Um, and um, to ask good questions, to make sure that we don't get too far afield from kind of what we want to talk about. Um, uh, we don't have a lot of this at this point, but I mean, if things start to get a little too inflammatory, um, a, a good facilitator can kind of diffuse uh, some of that. Um, um, sometimes a good facilitator can 
uh, kind of recognize when maybe some sidebar uh, conversations need to happen, uh, like especially if there's somebody new. Uh, and I mean, we encourage uh, folks, even if it's just their first time there, uh, I mean, we love for them to participate, but sometimes they don't kind of understand kind of maybe some of the things that we've already talked about in the conversation if they're coming into it new. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes we need to say, hey, um, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Maybe we can grab coffee this week or something um, uh, and kind of use some of those kind of sidebar conversations uh, to uh, uh, to try to keep the larger uh, conversation uh, a little bit more uh, focused on uh, the the task at hand, so to speak. Yeah, kind of an outcome. Right. So, are are you is the facilitator trying to get to an outcome, or is the facilitator just no, to... no, no, no? There's not. I mean, that's kind of part of the nature of how we practice conversation. Anyway, it's not. I mean, there's not. There's not answers, uh, and we very intentionally have said uh, for us that our conversation time isn't a decision-making time, uh, but it may what we talk about may have bearings on decisions that we make in other spaces. But but in some senses, that helps to take a little bit of the pressure off of it. Um, and uh, certainly uh, for us, uh, I mean, scripture has played a really important uh, role and in some senses what conversation does is it creates a space for us to interpret scripture together uh, a sort of hermeneutics yeah. of uh of the community um that uh and certainly there's people that i mean have skills in biblical languages and theology and so forth and certainly rely on those people, but, but we really want to try to, to own uh, uh, our understanding of scripture as a community, uh, not just kind of relegate that to one person or a few sort of uh, scholars. Uh, yeah. So they're valuable when they're needed. Right. But also, oh yeah, but sure, they're not sure. the only they people. Participate. Who- Right. Yeah. But they're not the only ones that get to get to chime in when, uh, uh, which I think is, see, that's fantastic. Okay. So what's the outcome? Well, so I can back to that, but like, <laughs> I, I want like what, how, what kind of a culture has that created in your church and that, that you're so drawn to? Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about some of this already or some of, maybe yeah. not in necessarily connecting it specifically to our congregation, but I mean, I think the best fruits of the practice of conversation for us, as I kind of already alluded to, is just this, this culture where we're increasingly uh, coming to know and be known uh, with, with one another. Mm-hmm. And I mean, kind of, I mean, as we're talking about things, I mean, we can see people's emotions and what are the, what are the sorts of things that are difficult uh, for some people uh, that make them angry or make them sad or more reserved than usual, um, those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and again, it may not actually happen in the Sunday conversation space, but sometimes we can kind of unpack some of those things uh, in smaller, maybe one-on-one conversations or smaller group conversations. Uh, I mean, I guess I haven't said specifically, but the the Sunday conversations is, is open to anybody in the congregation. 
Uh, we really would wish that everybody would participate, but some people don't. Um, but, but sociologically, in some senses, it's probably a little too large of a group mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, particularly effective conversations. Um, so there's, I mean, a lot of other contexts uh, that when we have small groups that we, we do, and we've started a number of different businesses, um, which allow us to have conversations throughout the week and to, to be in relationship with uh, one another uh, in that kind of way. Uh, and kind yeah. of all of that. Um, and a lot of us live uh, right here in the neighborhood, probably at least three quarters of our congregation probably lives within half a mile of the church building. I mean, again, we're in an urban neighborhood, so that's a fairly uh, large yeah. uh, radius but but uh but still uh we have a lot of um interactions together just as neighbors um and interactions uh with with other neighbors who aren't necessarily a part of the congregation um so so yeah i mean i think all of those things are contributing uh and particularly and i, I kind of alluded to this earlier when i was talking about kind of the roles of pastors and scholars um we believe that everyone who's part of our congregation uh, has been provided by God uh, for us and to us. And, um, and part of our work is kind of figuring out what that means. Um, and that everybody has a role, just like in a body, as I was saying earlier, uh, in, in my body or your body, anybody's, any human body, um, every part has a role to play. And so what, uh, what role does this person or that person uh, play? I mean, they're not, they're not on staff at the church, um, but, uh, but they, they've been gifted by God uh, for, for the, the life and mission of the local church uh, in yeah. our place. And, um, and so conversation is kind of some of the ways that we start to figure that out. And that's part of the reason that we started a number of businesses um, is that uh, trying to seeing when skills that people have in the congregation kind of intersect uh, with opportunities that we have, it, usually in our neighborhood, but sometimes a little bit more broadly than our neighborhood. I mean, I think my, my situation is a really good one uh, that as people were getting to know me uh, when I was early on here at Englewood, they realized that I just love, love, love books. <laughs> and, uh, and the church loved books and had a history of, of reading together and valuing practices of reading uh, books. Uh, and, uh, and so the church saw an opportunity to use the love of I, that I had for books to uh, create a ministry we don't really use that word too much but right. but a ministry of of kind of sharing books uh, with one another and with with people beyond our congregation and that's kind of how the how the Englewood review came about um that's but cool. it came from this culture of kind of really trying to know our members and figure out and again we don't have any illusions that everybody will work uh, for the church mm -hmm. but we, we try to find creative ways to engage people's work uh, with the mission of the church. I mean, we've had doctors and dentists who 
uh, and, and nurses uh, who make themselves available uh, in ways to to care for for people in the church and um, love that. Uh, and I mean, some of that is uh, the economics of that always kind of gets worked out. I mean, sometimes uh, that's somebody kind of tr traditionally paying for yeah. the the healthcare services of a doctor or a dentist, and sometimes it's the doctor or dentist being willing to to offer their services uh, to someone who doesn't have the the insurance or uh, finances to to deal with a particular situation. Um, uh, and so, and because we're doing a lot of work in our neighborhood, um, I mean, there's other groups uh, that are doing really good work in our neighborhood, and sometimes people from our church work for, for some of these other groups and having, having a person on the inside, as it were, mm. uh, really makes it easier to have partnerships and to work with these other groups. Um, so we really try to find ways to uh, connect. Uh, again, we talked, I talked earlier about kind of how uh, detrimental our kind of fragmentation of mind, body, and spirit has been, uh, but also the kind of fragmentation that we so often experience between home and work and church life um, is a kind of similar parallel uh, fragmentation that many of us in the United States and Western, the Western world kind of live within. And we've really tried to try to start to erode some of those chasms between those spheres and start to see, have some imagination for how some of those spheres might uh, begin to overlap um, in the ways that we share life together. And conversation makes it possible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, conversation is is the way that you navigate that. You can't have a program, or can't very effectively have a program uh, where you're uh, kind of just assigning people to, to, to do this or that. Um, but you're really, I mean, again, it's about knowing and being known. And that happens in conversation. And as you know and are known, then you can... Uh, hopefully uh, relate and find opportunities that are more helpful uh, for uh, the members of the body to, to be engaged with, with one another, but we're also with, with our neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a couple of thoughts uh, as you were talking, certainly, um, you know, that the way that the conversation empowers everyone right. And allows you to empower other people. And so like in your case with, uh, you know, the Inglewood book review, like that's a place for that you were empowered and then to see other people where we can empower them. I just think is so meaningful. And that's, that might be the community that a lot of people are seeking right now. Right. If we can mm -hmm. cre create something like that. Um, you know, I know that, yeah, I know what but a lot of people's experience, uh, I mean, again, in, in churches is particularly in the cult kind of evangelical sort of culture that we describe, people just don't, don't feel empowered. They don't feel seen or heard um, because they're not oftentimes they're not going to fit into the mold of staff or they're not completely sure that they're a, a Sunday school teacher or the relatively few sort of volunteer sort of roles that a lot of churches have um they they struggle to see themselves um kind of engaging with the church as within kind of that narrow sort of imagination for right. what a church is um 
and yeah, it's, it's absolutely empowering. And hopefully it, uh, uh, it works out to be, and, um, and that people actually do feel like they belong in a meaningful way here in Englewood. Yeah. I love that. Um, that, that idea of just empowering everyone is just one that resonates deeply with me. So uh, thanks for sharing that. I think it's cool how conversation does it. And I think it's also, I'll just say, uh, maybe where the church needs to head. You know, I, I really think um, we, it's time to let go of some of our old forms of discipleship and start to bring in some new ones. And it will be because uh, we're going to have to, right? I mean, at some point, people don't learn the way they used to learn. They learn. Sure. in these more tangible ways that they get to participate. So, And at the same time, just to really briefly return to what we were talking yeah. about earlier, uh, there is a long history of conversation in the church yes. uh, from the earliest period, uh, well, even from the, the, the era that's described in the New Testament. Uh, I think you could look at the, the book of Acts even as a, as a uh, story of a series of conversations, uh, but but yeah, I mean, in the church councils, yeah, uh, is certainly, uh, and kind of the way that scripture came into being, uh, the selection of what we know as the the canon uh, today uh, was was a series of of conversations, um, and uh, so I think uh, mm. there is a rich uh, tradition of conversation within the church. It's just that oftentimes that's obscured by kind of what we know Christianity to be through kind of Western evangelicalism um, yes. and just the ways that we're disconnected so many times disconnected from that history. Man, I do not want to keep you too long, but that was something that I got <laughs> as I was, as I was diving in here um, was this idea, maybe, and maybe it goes with the idea of embodiment. Maybe that's why it was good, but this idea of proximity, right? I mean, I think that's one thing Jesus did. He never thought that his proximity to a person who was a, a sinner uh, was going to make him dirty, right? He was willing to get right. into that conversation with them, right? <laughs> and I think that's that's when we talk about fragmentation, that's what I think about. Like there's so many of us that are, now it's political in, or it's about vaccines or what masks or whatever it is, right? There's all these things. Um, but the conversationalist, and I think the Christ-like way to approach one another is to say, okay, let me hear. What, what are you why do you think that or what, you know, let's talk about it and let's look at it through the lens of scripture and the parts we can agree on, whatever. But I think there's something to that idea of proximity in conversation that's really, really valuable. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the, I mean, especially when we talk about conversation with people kind of outside uh, the Christian faith uh, yeah. uh, or people that uh, might be looked down upon by society for some some ways, reason or another, um, and Jesus, of course, was very uh, very familiar with those on the kind of margins of the society of his day. Uh, but but he he approached them. I think again, the Gospels won't necessarily use this language, but uh, kind of recognizing the the image of God, the Imago Dei, uh, in in other people uh, uh, first and foremost and kind of using that as a basis right. um uh, and i mean not to diminish uh struggles or challenges that any particular person might have because we all have them um but 
uh, to to when we look at somebody in the face and uh, uh, to, to recognize that this person, how much ever I disagree with them or how much ever their experience has been different than mine uh, is, is a human being, uh, is uh, created in the image of God and loved uh, deeply by God. Um, and, and that, uh, that that's, that, that should be our way forward. Mm -hmm. um, not uh, trying to, uh, uh, I mean, approach it, trying to find reasons that we can demonize uh, and kind of exclude uh, other sorts of people whose ideas or experiences uh, don't uh, kind of uh, line up with our own. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's something pretty powerful there. Yeah, God's love of other people informs our love and our ability to also uh, hear them, I think, and, and ha engage in that conversation. Um, Absolutely. I love it. Okay. Well, Christopher, thanks so much for being here. I do appreciate it. I love the conversation about conversations. I think that's great. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely right in my wheelhouse. Uh, the book, again, friends, is called How the Body of Christ Talks. You can find it anywhere. Um, we mentioned a lot of books. I knew we would, this uh, <laughs> this conversation. So as always, I've linked them up at halfwaytherepodcast.com in the show notes. Just go find it and uh, you can get links to those related episodes, a, a, a list of all the things we talked about. And of course, a link to uh, the Inglewood review of books where I found a great article here uh, about N.T. Wright's books, an introductory get reading guide to the theologian's work. N.T. Wright's been keeping me on the straight and narrow lately. So I, I love, love that. Great. Yep. No, he's certainly been pretty influential <laughs> for, for me as well. hundred uh, percent. Christopher, is there anything you want to leave us with? No, I mean, but I mean, I would, I mean, I guess, I mean, just on the note, uh, I mean, I would encourage folks uh, to really find converse, find opportunities to have meaningful conversations, particularly with folks in your local congregations, uh, whether that's in a small group or a group of folks that gets together for, for coffee once a week or once a month or whatever. Um, I mean, I think that um, that sort of experience, that those sorts of opportunities, creating those opportunities uh, for conversation uh, really starts to move us, even even if only a tiny bit, uh, into the sort of conversational life of knowing and being known that God has created us for. Love it. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Eric.